Welcome back to season two of the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced running physiotherapist, coach, and marathoner. This season will involve open discussions with my running colleagues about the key principles behind injury-free running and optimal performance. It'll be backed by personal experience, science, and history. I can only hope some of these chats inspire curiosity and expand or confirm perspectives and beliefs amongst the running community. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today, I'm chatting to Austin Einhorn, a strength and conditioning coach from Santa Cruz, California, who practices a bit differently. He is founder of his movement gym, Apiros, and author of a soon-to-be-released book, Movement Banking. Austin, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, One update, the title of the book has changed. Okay. But it was once movement banking. It is now, uh, I rewrote it after, after that. Um, it is called The Evolved Coach, The Extinction of Injury and the Evolution of Performance. Nice, nice. Um, well, that leads nicely into that first, first sort of chat that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Austin, recently, Aussie listeners will find it quite interesting. You've had Andy Brayshaw. Oh, you just finished a session with Andy Brayshaw, um, and last month you had several Port Adelaide AFL players at your gym working out in their pre-season. Uh, your gym looks like a lot of fun, uh, literally looks like an adult playground. They were rock climbing, hanging, twisting, wrestling, crawling, and playing with movement. Uh, I'd love to hear how this experience has gone so far, and um, I feel like it's a great intro into your practice. Sure. Um... You know, I do, I do try to keep it fun, especially for, I mean, these pro athletes that have been doing this for a while, like it is challenging for a veteran to, to keep wanting to enjoy it. Right. So I I do try to make it enjoyable and as fun as possible. Um, I'm glad it looks that way as well. That's the environment I like to uh cultivate or, or create we do get our fair share of serious work done um that isn't to say that isn't you know it might look like we're just um goofing off with various things but there's usually uh, a very specific reason why i may be choosing one thing or another every now and then it'll be just because it's fun but usually um or so for instance some of the wrestling stuff that you saw was I had the ball on the ground and was trying to get both Travis and Ryan to get a little bit more rib cage motion. So I set them up almost in a, in a child's pose to lock them, uh, lock their hips. And so the only way they could try to grab the ball from me would be through bending through their spine, bending through the rib cage. Um, Travis got the idea pretty quickly. Ryan, I had to fight for my life for a little bit and then ask him to be a little more cooperative. 
uh, which <laughs> happened to be be fun there. Yeah, yeah. And so with this evolved approach to movement, um, when was this aha moment? Uh, because you amongst others have really opened my eyes to how insular and narrow-minded my physio approach um, has been uh, in the past. Uh, when, when did um, you really sort of come to realize, oh, um, you know, there's something in, in this um, sort of evolved approach um, to movement? It's been a few few moments. Um, there's been a few aha moments, and then I would say the opposite of those, where there's been a few uh oh moments. <laughs> yeah. Early in my career, like many people, I would do much more traditional things: um, monster squats, traditional warm ups, uh, you know, even clamshell type things. And then I would watch my athletes move in sport, and their knees would still collapse and they still had no ownership of their movement. They were still at a high risk for injury or, you know, they, they just still felt very, very poorly. And those were some of my uh-oh moments where I realized what I had been taught and what I had been told worked didn't in fact work, at least not for athletes. Maybe it works for, you know, Sally, who's a bank teller five days a week and you know, just needs her, her needs to work well enough to pick up her grandkids or, or whatever. And maybe that works for them. But when somebody's career depends on how well they may use their right leg, and not only from a health perspective, but even from a career or financial perspective, you know, they have a family, um, they have goals that are all riding on the line for the health of their, their leg. And I've always had this um, as an athlete myself, I, I felt really angry at therapists that failed me. I'm like, you don't even care. Like, you didn't help me at all. And then you took my money and just sent me on my way. And for me, it's like, I am obligated to help them get the results that they want. And that led me to more of my aha moments where I started figuring out or having to, to be creative and understanding how movement actually changes, um, both from a adaptation perspective, uh, but also from a skill perspective of how do we get somebody to change direction in a different way or a more safe, safe way. And then that that sort of laying the groundwork for me to understand or be i was asked the right question by a former mentor of he asked me essentially how did movement evolve and i studied evolution a little bit in college and so i knew enough to be dangerous and that question blew me away and i started looking into how movements and how humans and, and other animals actually evolved and what are the major milestones and what 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 movement patterns really changed throughout life on earth um one of the last aha moments this is before i understood evolution but i started getting one of my athletes to hang she was a stanford all-american um and could not be healthy for three out of her four years while at stanford had everybody at Stanford trying to help her could not help her. 
she came to me once she graduated and to try to piece things together for hopes at a professional career. And I was still figuring out some of this evolution stuff. And um, I was just starting to sniff in the direction here. And I started getting her to just hang from rings, just passively just to hang. And that was one of the most effective things for her shoulders that helped her um, uh, stay healthy, to put it, to put it simply. Um, later did I find out that only the only species on the planet that have rotator cuffs like humans are ones that I've said this numerous times, but they're the only species that can hang and swing on things. You know, a, a jaguar or a bear can climb a tree, but they don't have rotator cuffs. The only species that have rotator cuffs are arboreal primates, including us. And uh, oddly, the tree, the tree kangaroo um, also has <laughs> a rotator cuff. Um, and so once I realized that, that was maybe my one of my later or last aha moments is like, one, the rotator cuff is extremely poorly named. Um, the fact that it can rotate the arm is a byproduct of, of its hanging, climbing, and swinging abilities. Um, two, its job, it, its job is not to rotate the arm. Its job is to keep the ball in the socket when arms are overhead, regardless of species. Um, and so to train Jordan's rotator cuff, the, the girl that I was mentioning, like, oh, I just had to get her overhead to, to hang and swing and climb a bit more. Nice. Yeah. And would you say that um, a lot of humans have kind of devolved and lost this aspect? Um, yeah, so that's that's um, something that is baked into our biology, and it's not just humans that can devolve. Elderly dogs or an injured tiger will devolve its movement, not only its pattern, but it's also its complexity. Complexity being, in, in this instance, how many joints are being used. So somebody who has a limp will maybe lock out their knee on stance phase, to reduce the complexity and, and make it a little bit easier and, and offload weight. An injured tiger will do this the same as well as, you know, elderly dogs that have maybe an arthritic knee or something, where they will, they will devolve to more of a, a straight knee position. Why I say devolve is that's very similar to how um, aquatic species propel themselves. So, uh, a whale, well, a whale's pectoral fin has the same anatomy as a, our arm. It has a humerus, it has a radius, it has an ulna, it has metacarpals, it has phalanges. There's just no joints there. The, the radius, ulna, and humerus are, fu are not necessarily fused, but they don't bend. And so for it to propel, it, it's taking a locked out arm to push itself forward in the water. And that's the same pattern that we would see with these examples of an injured tiger, arthritic dog, or many modern humans who will devolve their movement to a, a more simple or more redundant form of, of movement. And it is a redundancy. It's a safety mechanism. It allows us to keep moving toward food or water 
or shelter while we are injured, but they are not long-term solutions. And that's one of the reasons why we see so many injuries today is a lot of athletes are moving in a devolved way and we can do that for some time. We are very robust creatures, but without people recognizing it and addressing it, then it results in injury. The awesome part is, and why my book is titled the way it is, The Extinction of Injuries, I believe non-contact injuries can be prevented. There's, it just does not, it makes more logical sense that somebody's knee doesn't, it can be prevented from an ACL tear instead of it just like randomly imploding someday. Like there has to be precursors, there has to, and they have to be uh, discernible um, by coaches and therapists. And so that's, that's really what I'm trying to, to do with my, my career, my book and my course. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Um, with, with, um, something like hanging and, and rock climbing or, or crawling, uh, like what, how do you, how do you feel they, they set apart compared to like a, I don't know, just a, a physio exercise where it's all broken down and you're just targeting on one muscle. Um, like how, uh, what are the streams of benefits, um, uh, in terms of like, I, I know it's a broad question, but, uh, what are the streams yeah. of benefits of say, uh, yeah, choosing rock climbing over a TheraBand rotator cuff exercise or something like that. Right. So there is a time and place for those more simple exercises. I mean, all, almost all the AFL athletes that have been here, I didn't, I wouldn't say I gave them a traditional, like something with a TheraBand, but all of them got some sort of specific and, and isolated movement to create awareness and access about, about how to, to move a certain joint. So, um, one athlete that I saw today, not Andy, uh, when he goes in plantar flexion, he gets it all actually through his midfoot. He actually does not get plantar flexion at his ankle or his heel. And so I had to teach him how to literally plantar flex his calcaneus, um, or do something similar, say with somebody's forearm. There's a picture for the Cubs that I was working with yesterday who would get pronation through his hand and through his wrist instead of his forearm. And so I would isolate his forearm and ask him to get pronation at his forearm. Now with climbing, um, it won't necessarily substitute some of those isolated movements, but it will put you in positions that you cannot train otherwise. With, uh, so one of my baseball players that I was working with yesterday, we were doing a climbing move called a gas stone, which is one where you're, you're, oh, if you can imagine it and you're listening, your elbow is up to the side about shoulder height, your palm is facing away from you and you're almost pushing into a hole, except that the only way to stay on the wall and do that is to also push your opposite foot into a hold out to the side of you. So you're almost diagonal or horizontal. And this move requires you to create tension and communicate forces from your fingertips to your toes in this novel, yet sometimes sport-specific position where it honestly looks like a phase of throwing. 
And so for a baseball player, it actually becomes very, very specific of how does he create tension from his hand to his foot and through his, his wrist, his elbow, his shoulder, his rib cage, maybe it's rotated, maybe it's slightly side bent, but he still has to develop strength there. And all these joints are designed that we have are designed to move. They're designed to bend and communicate forces through them. That's why muscles attach to all of them. There's muscles are supposed to move them. They're supposed to contract. And when we just like stand in place and move unilaterally, um, or just like move straight up and down, we're not communicating forces through all these muscles, through all these joints in, the, in ways that are respectful to our evolution. We, we must respect the structures that are inherent in all of us. And we don't do that through traditional movements. We just keep on doing the, the same uh, same song and dance like that can be found at a fitness magazine. And it's like, really? <laughs> the best that we got? Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, like, right. I like how it's like coupling um, the, oh, the whole body while you're doing that goal-orientated sort of movement but you're coupling it with um yeah something a bit more meaningful as well and there's like a challenge and a goal um that's what i've really liked about um following your your stuff and and why i'm i'm, I'm wanting to integrate more of it um in some way um into the way i practice because um i just feel like compliance will be there as well and then also uh, greater because it's more challenging and there's some intention behind the exercise but also uh i like the idea that um uh you're integrating there's more to it it's more meaningful it's not just this exercise where you have to pull the band it's um yeah it's greater than that yeah i mean most athletes end up i start most sessions asking with the athletes what they want to do today when it's an upper body day, most athletes say they want to get on the wall. They want to climb. And I make up routes for them. I make up challenges. And I usually just set, you know, I set it and forget it almost. Where I'm like, hey, do this route. And I I've, can design routes for specific people um, or specific moves for a shoulder that needs more external rotation or needs more adduction. And then I just need to tell them to go do that route several times. And then I step back and watch the magic happen. And it's fantastic. <laughs> Amazing as a coach. And would you have a route for, oh, I need to work on thoracic mobility or, or hip, hip range or something like that. And you just set the constraints on the wall. Uh, this is one of my rules. We, I don't want to use any skill science terms, so we can't use the word constraint if you don't mind. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no ecological dynamics. No, <laughs> n none of that. No, that doesn't make any sense to most, most yeah. coaches. Yep. Um, yeah. So yeah, I will set a, a route where I'll say you have to um, the, the only way someone is able to do a Gaston, like I talked about, is if they're pushing with that opposite foot in their hand. So within the route is baked uh, a success or failure bottleneck, um, or whether or not they can step up. So for a hip mobility thing, you, you would make a high step um, where I can move the I move the rock wall. I adapt it during the sessions, oftentimes for an athlete where 
I might make the foot a little bit higher, a little bit higher until they're basically in a pistol squat on the wall, pancakes their belly button into the wall, face into the wall, and then precariously balanced on the ball of their big toe. And then I say, well, I don't say anything. The rest of the route says, tells them to stand up. Um, or I might do one where they have to, the only way they, you can make routes where the only way they do it is by rotating their thoracic spine, where you can create um, put holds where they have to grip in certain positions and then walk their feet from one way or another to complete the route. That being said, there are plenty of times where I say there's no route. I just say, hang from these two holds, move your foot from there to there. Yeah, yep, yeah. That's awesome. Um, say, like, you had a runner come in, um, would you still use things like that? Um, like, would you still, like, what? I know this is a broad question again, but, um, like, what's your process if you had a runner where you felt like they could move better and more effectively? Um, uh, how do you sort of break it down and and would you still use the rock climbing wall or crawling or hanging and yeah how, how do you sure. go about yeah treating say a runner if i was seeing a runner most likely i'm going to work on their upper body um i still like here's why the whole body is a force producing organ it's not just the legs. Just because the legs hit the ground and you move them a lot does not mean they're the only things responsible for making you get from point A to point B. The entire body is helping you communicate forces. The better the whole body does that, the better you run. So while upper bicep might be a lower priority for most runners, I'm still going to have them do that. I might say, okay, I'm going to set a timer. You have to be on the wall and moving for at least two minutes straight. You cannot come off the wall. You just have to move. I don't care where you go or what you do. You can repeat the same move for two minutes for all I care. You just have to be moving. You can't just stand there. Um, the other standards that I have, they need to be able to hang for at least a minute at a bare minimum, bare minimum from two hands. Ideally, it's closer to two minutes. From one hand, they need to be able to hang for, uh, you guys use kilograms. So <laughs> from one hand, my standard is 40% of their body weight in seconds in kilos. So um, that means a 100 kilo male is hanging for about 40 seconds, which is pretty hard for anybody who's 100 kilos. Um, for females, it actually, sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's harder. I, the, the people who have the longest hanging records in the gym are all, all women um, in the gym. I also want them to be able to do a, a single arm scapular pull up. And for men, my standards are pretty high for upper body. Um, ideally, they're getting 10 pull ups unassisted, but if they can do five, I'm happy. If females can get one to two unassisted pull-ups, some good stuff is usually usually happening. But I don't mean like, I mean, they, they need to own it. Like shoulders, it's not just chin barely cresting the bar and they're not like throwing their legs up. 
is they, they own the pull-up, meaning they can control it. They can do it any day of the week. And the top of the pull-up is, is their shoulders meeting their hands, not their chins just cresting the bar. If they can keep their knees to their chest, both the males and females, even better. That usually will protect the spine, or not protect, but it puts it in a in a more favorable position. It will make the, the pull-up or chin up a lot harder, um, but I think it exposes a lot of weaknesses. That's that's probably the bare minimum that I would give most runners is hanging, scapular pull-ups and pull-ups. Um, we can get into all sorts of different variations or specificity of how people pull up. Um, but from a 30,000 foot view, that's, that's where we're at. That's fantastic. Um, I was really interested in that actually. Um, like, um, yeah, so like that, do you think that that sort of will help them move better with their whole body because they're moving how they're evolved to move like a human, like they're more healthy and fit sort of through their whole body? It should, yeah. but there's no guarantees. Like this is, this is a thing a lot of movement practitioners don't get, and I don't think the skill science people get either. Just because somebody can do five pull-ups doesn't mean their arms are going to move better. Yep. Oftentimes you need to bring awareness to the limb. So um, one of the AFL guys, uh, I mean, all of them have hurt their shoulders. It's the AFL. <laughs> um, one of them hurt their shoulder and then they stopped swinging their arm when they ran. And I've seen this, I've seen this happen numerous times. And so I'll tell you two different stories. One time, I restore some function and movement back to the injured arm and they go and run and it magically just starts swinging again. Their arm starts moving. There's other times where I do work on the shoulder, all the range, all the symptoms, everything, everything gets better. Right? It's like I wave, imagine I just wave a magic wand, everything gets better. They go back to running, their arm doesn't move anymore when they run. And so as a coach, you, you can't just expect the results to always happen. You need to check that they will happen. I, I don't make any promises with anything that I do. Um, it's that, well, it depends. Let's see how it goes and we'll adapt along the way. So um, in the case where the shoulder is not, the arm isn't swinging when the athlete is running, even though their range is perfect, their strength is back, they have no pain. Oftentimes it needs to be like, hey, I'd have, kind of badger them, like, let your arm move, let your arm move, let it swing, just relax it, it'll swing on its own, just let it swing. Um, or I encourage them to, hey, let it swing, move it, move it, exaggerate, exaggerate the swing. Um, because they, the brain is so good at predicting what is useful and, and sustainable, or not useful, um, it's not sustainable, but it's predicting what's useful movement from a task perspective. It'll predict, well, this is how we've always ran before and it's worked. We got from point A to B, we got points on the board. So we're gonna keep doing that same strategy. And unless you bring intention to changing these movements, it's likely not guaranteed that it's going to happen. You need to just be aware as a coach and see that it actually happens when you expect it to happen. If not, you need to figure out why it's not happening. 
Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I'm not being too, too broad, but also hopefully specific. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, I also remember seeing, um, it would have been a couple of years ago or, or thereabouts, um, you rolling on the floor with um, uh, the US distance runner, um, Vanessa Fraser, on the wrestling mat and yeah. looked like you were copying, or she was copying you, like trying to do the same rotation and then she was trying to copy you. Um, yeah, I found that fascinating. Um, uh, can you remember that example and what you're working on or? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I, oh, I can't remember that exact example, but I do know what, what I was, what Jeff and I were working on with, with her. Um, one, the, so this is what I'm tagging in to help Jeff in his sessions, just like he helps me in mine. And he likes it when I run these more flowy sessions for him. That's what he calls it in his training program is okay. We're going to flow. And there's a few things that we would work on. Um, one would be, I'd be encouraging her to get more thoracic mobility and rotation. So there's one time where we started in, in bear and let me paint a picture for, for listeners. So we're starting in bear, meaning hands are on the ground, toes on the ground, knees are elevated. And then I, I would lead the movement and I would spin my hips. So my belly button would face her and my right heel and, and foot would hit the ground. And so I'm, I'm now on one foot, my hands have stayed still. So I've twisted through my spine and I would slide my left foot backwards. So I'm doing, I'm like sliding backward away from my hands with a twist in my spine. And so I would ask her to just mimic me. And, and usually she would substitute the motion from her rib cage to her elbows or her shoulder blades where she's bending an arm. And I would pause. I might just give her a glaring look. So for to clue her in of like what she's actually doing, or I might just tell her, Hey, straighten your arms. Um, and then we would repeat that in, in various different, different instances, um, where I'm just get, trying to get her to again, contract muscles in, in ranges that she doesn't normally have ownership of in this case, thoracic rotation. Another one would be some dorsiflexion, um, where we might be in a, a deep squat and then I might veer into different directions. I'd elevate my heels, putting them under my sit bones and then move my knees forward and backward while we're trying to get some dorsiflexion, trying to get that ankle to, to move a little bit. I might bring attention to her anterior tib. Um, in dorsiflexion or in a closed chain example, meaning when she's on the ground, her foot's on the ground, the anterior tip should be relaxed instead of almost compressing that joint by, by pulling the foot up towards the shin. I want it to, to relax so she can really sit into that ankle joint. Um, there's been times where we'd both be in a deep squat and I would just like, I, I think with her, I'd push her a little bit just to challenge her stability in a deep squat. Um, those are probably some of the main examples that I, I can remember off the top of my head. Yeah. Cool. Uh, that's great. Um, I was watching um, a few of your clips with the AFL footballers and when you were working on um, sprint mechanics um, and, and sprinting form and you were doing the dribbling drills and then, then you transferred that into some accelerations and some running and then you transferred it into chasing a frisbee and then a American uh, football and then an AFL football 
uh, with um, uh, working on someone's running running form, I'm I'm a like I think everyone's so so different, and and you hear so many different um, views on like oh how do you go about it. Um, I've definitely um, in the past been been too. I've overcoached it and, and probably turned a few runners into sort of robots and been way too, they become too cognitive and, and then they're sort mm -hmm. of overthinking it and then they're not moving nice and flow, like they're not moving with that nice flow and just natural rhythm that you see in, in the Kenyans or the African runners, they move so beautifully. Um, yeah, when you're, when you're sort of working with say the running drills, like how much are you queuing and, and, uh, What's your process process there? Yeah, so very good questions. I used to overcue. I used to try to get everything perfect. In skill sessions, I try so hard to just give one cue. At least at time. I might rotate through three in a session. Um, I might use different words, but the goal or outcome is still always the same. And I might just try to keep it really, really succinct. I also need to get to know the athlete and respect what they're capable of. When I'm working with these five Aussies on their accelerations, like they are all have different proportions. They all have different strength and power elements. So I need to understand that they're not gonna all gonna, very few can have the projection angle that I ideally would want, but I need to get them, I wanna give them a, an idea, a taste of what a projection angle is. So I tell them to exaggerate it almost to the point where they're falling forward. I want them to find their limit of how, how far can they lean so that we have we have, we have a limit. We have a point where there's a mistake and I will demo it and fall flat on my face if I have to. But then I want them to come back from there to understand where, where their projection angle is. Um, because most, I think most field athletes, not just AFL players, but most field athletes, a lot of them can improve a lot of their, their running and acceleration mechanics. If there's something really eye-catching eye from not a good, that's not, not something good that's eye-catching, I might just have the other guys continue while I pull one off to the side and try to improve some stuff. Um, but then, I mean, this is the great thing about working with such high-level athletes is they can figure stuff out pretty quickly and then they get bored and they're <laughs> like, all right, like, can, we, can we do something else? And I'm like, yes. This is where it's great to have Travis um, with me in these sessions is he can help me um, do that is because he, he's comfortable enough with me. He's like, all right, I'm ready to move on. Everybody else move ready to move on. And okay, so we do that. And my intention was say the Frisbee, and this is stuff that I'm getting into from my book. Um, as you might have noticed, I, I think the literature around skill acquisition and how it's written is impossibly complex. And it's part of the reason why I think so few coaches in the world understand how to develop skills is the way the researchers and textbooks write about skills is 
really hard to understand. We're just talking about games. Talking about games. We're talking about boundaries, balls, people, changing direction, jukes, points, whatever. Why can't we use that language? <laughs> so I, I, I've created a, a new model, and this is in my book. Um, and so there's, in my mind, there's only eight skills. I'm going to talk about the four hard skills. So in the gym and with the dribbles or acceleration drills, I'm teaching people, teaching their brains how to predict better movement. And I'm showing them that it is more powerful or feels better or it's safer. And I use that word predict very specifically. The brain is a prediction making organ. It predicts what movements accomplish tasks. It does not predict what movements are sustainable. And I mean, it predicts what emotions are use, supposedly useful or predicts what words I'm about to say to communicate this idea from me all the way to you, you know, halfway across the world. <laughs> um, and so with these four, four skills that I'm about to talk about, there's the prediction of movement, which is in the gym or with a isolated dribble drill or sprinting drill. And then there's the prediction of an object, say uh, Aussie rules, uh, AFL football. And then, as you mentioned, a Frisbee. A Frisbee is going to travel in the air a little bit longer than most balls, unless you throw it extremely high. But if you if you give it on a normal flight path, the Frisbee is going to hang in the air longer than a ball. And that's on purpose because now I'm trying to get people to predict a better sprint mechanics or, or running mechanics. Say they're at more of their top speed where their spine is vertical. And they need time to think about their mechanics and track the Frisbee. So the Frisbee gives them more time to predict. Things that are slower are easier to predict. It's why a slow baseball gets a hit a lot easier than a 105 mile an hour baseball in America. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some equivalent with cricket. Um, <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know the cricket bowling speeds. Um, so I, I go with a Frisbee that can float in the air so they can think about and choose better run it, running mechanics while they're tracking the Frisbee. So there's two predictions there. But with sport, it's always usually about f these four predictions, which is movement, space between you, a sideline, predicting space between you and another person, how much space, how that space is going to close or open based on speeds, your own speed, somebody else's speed. Then there's predicting another person. And that means you're in a one-on-one -on -one scenario, two-on-one scenario, you're watching that person and your brain does this amazing thing where you're watching them and it compares it to all of your known history. And based on your history, it chooses or predicts where that person will be in the future. And a correct prediction means you get to keep carrying the ball and run wherever you want. A poor prediction means you're face first in the grass. So then I start combining predictions. I combine the prediction of movement with the prediction of another person. So now I have maybe two, two athletes approaching themselves somewhat slowly to give themselves more time to predict. And can they maintain these better movements that we're working on um, while predicting another person? And then we put it all together and try to predict the movement the better running mechanics, the ball, and the other person. 
and it's not pretty. And that's, <laughs> that's the point, though. Like, if it was, then, well, they're just doing what they're really good at. Like, it drives me insane when we see highlights of an athlete practicing alone, making 10 out of 10 goals or 10 out of 10 shots. Like, that's not impressive at all. That's That's as easy as you and me using a fork. Yeah. Like, <laughs> 10 out of 10 times I'm making the fork into my mouth. Like that is not skillful. That, like it's, it's not, it's not practice. You're not, you're not enhancing skill. Skill needs it to be messy. It needs to be mistakes because mistakes trigger learning when intentions, your predicted intention does not match the predicted outcome or the actual outcome. Your brain learns and figures it out. So I want it to be messy. I want them both. I want them to fall over. I want them to not do it right. I want them to miss the ball entirely. And I, I praise them for that. I, I literally will jump up, uh, you know, with my hands in the air when somebody makes a mistake because I know what it means. It means they're going to learn. As long as they sleep and keep making mistakes, their brain's going to figure it out. So, um that's that's kind of my summary on on my field sessions again it's it's more of it's outlined in my book um which i'm trying to get out as soon as possible but it's it's hard with all these australians here uh, <laughs> they keep coming over <laughs> they keep coming over there's another one here right now that i'm not allowed to talk about but he's very fun oh <laughs> oh that that's great i i feel like that's um a piece of the puzzle that i've been missing with a lot of um my physio work um just trying to make the um session a bit more field based and contextual to what you're training for and um the last year or two i've been working with a few runners personally coaching them and um tr trying to work on their movement mechanics and i've got one boy in particular that um he's come a long way um he uh is a gamer <laughs> So he got a lot of injuries in the first year I coached him. He got two stress fractures in, in 10 months and we worked out, we w went through all the medic medical work up and we just worked out that he just wasn't physically um, uh, conditioned or strong enough. And then his, his movement, he was just a bit physically illiterate um, and he, he um, admit, admits that and he's wor worked on it with um, all the gym work and, and drills that we've done, but we've st slowly expanded how we've looked at it and worked on range of motion and um, through his thoracic spine and that even improved his movement. And then recently we've worked on running downhill because um, uh, he always ran so scared, like the brakes were on um, and leant back and overstrode and overcast his leg and he just didn't look nice downhill. He, um, and a little bit of that also um, is his vision's not the best, uh, we thought. Um, so we've been practicing doing running like um actually intentional running um drills downhill as well and uh, i feel like that idea of like learning how you interact with space and um and you know there might some of those trails downhill have had rocks on them and, and crevices and and he's had to like use good footwork um and intentional footwork down the hill and, and run uh less less scared and more free um so yeah I don't know, I, I really like um, that idea because I don't think it's practiced enough. There's a disconnect between the therapist and the coach and, and often um, it, uh, that, that's where uh, athletes fall down. Yeah, uh, just because I'm, I'm curious about the differences in American versus Australian English, 
When you say gamer, you mean he's really competitive or he plays a lot of video games? Oh, video games. Yeah, video okay. games. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it's, yeah. I wanted to, um, yeah, like, I know I've held you up quite a while, but I wanted to um, talk about the idea of movement banking. Um, I heard you talk about it on another podcast and uh, I feel like um, this particular athlete uh, missed out on a, a fair bit of um, uh, just just collecting movement um, through his youth. He missed some investments. Yes. <laughs> um, so do you mind like just filling in listeners right. to why it could be a good concept for a runner to know about? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's good concepts for, for runners to know about. It's good concepts for parents especially to know about. Um, what I might share uh, might be alarming for some parents. Um, and I know it was for me. And it's changed how I will future parent parent my future children. Um, so it, it started with under like looking at athletes who move professional athletes who move very poorly, but are always healthy. Where every coach that I know would be like, he should be tearing his hamstring every time he goes and runs. And he doesn't. Um, Raheem Sterling is one guy that I'm thinking of. Huh. He's recently had some back pain, but yeah. um, not surprised. He, he runs with a big anterior tilt. Yeah. <laughs> so what? Where this this sent me down such a big rabbit hole, and I discovered that there's makes complete sense that like kids are very plastic in every capacity you can imagine and from a tissue and bone perspective they they either are making investments for their future or they're not they're they're what they do or don't do during their childhood is essentially telling their body well this is what earth is like this is what life is going to be like so um, we either are going to make our tissues very robust and resilient or we're not going to, because why should we? Like your tendon, your Achilles tendon does not know that at 16 years old, suddenly you're gonna fall in love with football and want to play all the time. And then at 22, you rupture your Achilles tendon and you're wondering why that happened. And it's because what you didn't invest into when you were a kid or what your parents didn't let you do or how they, they decided to raise you and every parent is doing their best um, and doing what, what they think is best for their child. Except in the modern era, like our children are not active enough. Childhood is literally the only time where more movement is better um, until they're tired. When they're tired, let them rest. But otherwise they have so much energy because they're supposed to expend it moving. And, and I'm getting to the point here where like certain tendons and bones and muscles have investment windows, if you will. They, they have windows of, of opportunity. For example, there's one paper that talks about the major uh, adapt, adaptation period for Achilles tendons in the paper, but it, it likely means almost all tendons. And by the, it said by age 17, major turnover of the Achilles stops, um, meaning uh, at college and turnover adaptation, but mother nature does not know what 17 means. 
what 17 means is approximately the end of puberty. So once puberty ends, you've either invested into your tendons or you haven't. That being said, yes, some changes can happen after puberty. You know, I've, I know I've changed my tendons with my loading schemes. Like there are ways to load people's tendons to get rid of tendonitis, tendinopathies. You can make tendons more dense as an, as an adult, but not, they are not nearly as adaptable as when they are as a kid. And so there's other windows like bone shape bone shape um, and density there are all there's different windows like you know the foot of a child pretty much ossifies by around six or the shape of the foot around six pick any body part any muscle um, sorry any bone and there is something um, that is coming into its final final shapes or forms at some point between you know zero and puberty bone density um, and uh, is mostly decided by 20. Um, it's recently, they're finally admitting that osteoporosis is a disease of childhood that shows up 60 or 70 years later. So my one of my guesses, and, and granted, I'm not a physician, I'm not a physical therapist, but one of my, I look at a big picture thing of why osteoporosis shows up more in women. And I do wonder if it has to do more with gender roles that um, boys typically end up being more active. Boys will be boys kind of stuff. They roughhouse while, while young girls in general, I don't think have played as much throughout childhood until more recently when it's become more normal for that to happen. So I'm extremely curious the rates of osteoporosis in the future um amongst young girls who have been active there's obviously the other side of the equation which is modern kids are not nearly as active um lastly one of the last other you know big investments is um say you get a desk job when you graduate university and you stop working out you lose a bunch of muscle mass and then you hit your 30th birthday you have a little bit of a quarter life crisis you look down and you're like what happened to my stomach i used to be fit <laughs> And as long as you had an active childhood, you've literally banked the muscle cells to return back to how they once were. If you're eating normally and your hormones are in balance and whatnot, if you've had an active childhood, the ability to restore your muscle size and function as an adult is much easier if you've had an active childhood. And so that's what I mean by movement banking, literally banking movement as a child will change what investments you can accrue um, what return on your investments you get as a biological adult not just like an adult who's you know got a desk job and a retirement plan and a dental plan or whatever um, I mean a biological adult meaning somebody who's finished puberty so uh, that that's when you can start getting, I guess you could say returns on the investment as, as a kid. So that's movement banking. Yeah. And that's, um, great. And, and like you said, like, um, like it, it's never, never too late. Like say, uh, like you still can improve your, um, you know, capacity or strength, like as an adult, but it's, um, 
it's obviously like such a pivotal time through adolescence to, to, um, right. Yeah. Like you and I have still probably seen amazing transformations of adults. Yep. We're still extremely adapt adaptable creatures. We, we are biology, biology adapts. It just goes to show just how adaptable kids are like, okay, we can adapt. You throw, you know, hundred kilos on my back. My tendons are going to change. Sure. It's going to take some time and it's going to take a lot more effort. And it's not going to be nearly as fun as just playing soccer with my friends out on the street or getting into some trouble. Or what I did was jump off my roof of my house, yeah. jumping my hobby. No wonder <laughs> I, I fell in love with volleyball. Um, yeah. It just goes to show just how adaptable kids are and they need so much more than what they are offered. Yeah, structured practice, structured, structured practice isn't enough. Like going from one sport to another to another is not enough. I've seen it's good, but they need free play. They need unstructured free play. Like the child will figure out what they need and work on it on their own. They don't need a coach to tell them to kick the ball the exact same way 500 times on Tuesday. Otherwise they're not going to play on Saturday. My God, the practices kids have to go to. I'm surprised anybody shows up. It is me sorry i'm so <laughs> passionate about the parenting and the the movement banking side i can't i get so frustrated with how young kids have to practice their sports and and it's it's sad because you only as you said you started off you only know what you know and so many of these youth coaches they just don't know what they don't know they're repeating what they did or repeating what seems logical like okay all these teen kids here are here to play soccer they're here to play cricket they're here to play aussie rules football whatever Okay, this is how you get them to kick better. We just just can repeat the same kick five hundred times, and as a kid, they will get better. Like they won't know what to do with the kick under pressure on Saturday, but um, they will get better at the kick. <laughs> it's just not useful for the child on a holistic level. They need to explore. They need to play. They need to not have a coach tell them what to do all the time. And like, would you recommend, um, like, so, um, I, I've, I've seen a lot of runners say specialize into distance running, um, in their early teens. Um, uh, I mean, I treated a, a hurdler just recently, uh, who injured her knee cause she tripped over a hurdle and, um, rolled her ankle and then, um, uh, laterally sprained the ligament or ruptured the ligament in her knee and had to have surgery. She was only 16. Um, and then I've been working with her the last eight months and uh, she's made amazing gains. She's specialised in, in athletics um, uh, from six. Uh, and anyway, she's moved so well in the sagittal plane when she's going forwards with all her drills. But then as soon as we started doing hacky sack and <laughs> soccer and, and things that involved a bit more of a lateral motion, uh, her ankles would wobble, her hips would, wouldn't know what to do with that, that motion. Uh, and it was really eye-opening just starting to do some lateral plane um, kind of hopping and things like that. She hadn't done it. Uh, she hadn't experienced um, that aspect. And I feel like um, in hurdling, if you hit the hurdle, suddenly you're off balance and it's not all planned and and you're gonna land a bit laterally. And, and, I, and I feel like for her, um, uh, th that was probably a part of, um, that we hypothesized that that was part of the contributing factor to why she did an injury. And so we've been working on that. 
Um, so do you, do you feel like um, kids should have a bit more general general um, uh, range of, of um, sports that they should muck around and do uh, um, throughout their early stages of development? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, beyond that, though, not even just traditional sports. They shouldn't just go from athletics to football to soccer to cricket. Like, I love all the other stuff that's showing up. Like, go to a Ninja Warrior gym. Go enroll in a parkour class for the summer. Um, you know, go to a hip-hop dance class. Like, figure out how to move your body in different and challenging ways. Um, and, of course, in different speeds different planes um you know maybe even an improv class a physical improv class where they're teaching you how to use your body in comedic ways like i don't care um at the younger ages like get them to do something get them to do something different like get them to fall in love with just moving their body and not just winning it's yeah. gonna work a lot better in the long term so do you do much dance in your practice like at all um i haven't yet but i've started to like um realize that oh wow like that's how you can create rhythm and feel and, and body awareness um uh yeah for sure i need to i'm keen to go down that that direction a little bit not really dance there's one time i had a guy imitate a salsa dance to work on his hip control yeah. and hip mobility he did a good job yeah um, i still implement uh, some moves, specific moves, some break dancing for different upper body strength or rib cage motions. Um, occasionally, I will utilize rhythm. You know, one instance I when I used to, I, I don't really work with young athletes as much anymore. But um, when I used to, one was a musician, and so I would put a metronome on in the background or a song, and I would say, "You have to squat to the rhythm of the song." Got a lot more buy-in, um, and he moved actually better with with rhythm. Um, rather than just like a tempo of all right one second down two seconds up or, or whatever you know nah, so good um, i've taken up way too much of your time austin and you've been so oh, generous yeah um uh like uh where can uh listeners find out more about you follow you and and get your book um if they're interested uh yeah Right. The best place would be my Instagram, which is uh, at apiros.team. That's A-P-I-R-O-S dot team, like football team. And then the book and the coaching courses uh, can be all found at theevolvedcoach.com. And that's it. I mean, I have a Twitter, but it's empty. Like, <laughs> I retweet other people's tweets about me and that's, that's it. I don't really go to Twitter yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Austin. That was a great chat and um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. It was great.